In the message I'm going to give you today, we're going to explore the rich meaning of a concept. A concept that's represented by a word. And the word, when we begin to look at it, you will see, is insufficient to the task of representing the concept. Now, at this point, if we were in a movie setting, you would see the screen start to do this like we're going back in time. And I'll give you a little background before we launch into the specific word or concept that I want to discuss with you today. First half of my life, uh, I had very little interest in English class. Wasn't a fan of writing, grammar, words, or as we used to talk about it, learning all of these vocabulary words. But during the second half of my life, I've come to appreciate writing. I'm still not in love with grammar. I'm still not a big fan fan of English class, but I have many who teach the class and are good friends of mine. I just don't want to be in their classes. (laughs) But I especially value the study of words. In fact, it's gotten so serious I was, I was going to wear these today, but I decided just to bring them up because I'd have to do some gymnastics for you to see them on me. But these are my Gutenberg Bible socks. I uh, recently went down in, in to Austin, saw a Gutenberg Bible, and decided I liked those socks. And my interest in typology and uh, words and printing and all of those things kind of merged uh, with that purchase. But I've come to really value the study of words. We refer to that study in the professional realm as etymology, which is the study of the origin of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. I found that fascinating when I first began to study words in that, in that realm, that words are not static. They, come, they move. Their meaning moves. But the study of words has benefited me probably in an unexpected way as much as any other study topic in my Bible study. You know, we may take it for granted that words are the vehicle of communication. Uh, It's the way in which one individual shares concepts with another. And in the world of Bible study, it is of great concern to determine what God wishes communicated to man, what he wishes to communicate with each of us. We read of a rare few that had direct conversation and communication with God. Moses, you may remember, had a great honor given to him. Uh, I'll just quote, quote the uh, passage and then give you the scripture here in just a minute. But it's, it's said of Moses, I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, like was done with many of the prophets. And he sees the form of God. That's from Numbers 12, verse 8. What a privilege that was for him to to have that form of communication with God. But the majority of mankind, for all of us today, we rely on the written word. We rely on the Bible as the primary form of communication. It's interesting that God used Moses to get that process started in writing some of the early books of the Bible. If you've ever studied language or you've studied words, you can come to see that words and language at the human level can be sloppy. Now I say human level because we're aware scripturally that there will one day be a pure language 
We can understand that God has some sort of pure communication that takes place on the spiritual realm. And that's a pure language in Zephaniah 3 and verse 9 that'll end up being restored to humanity, a pure language, and they can all call on God in one accord. Now let me explain a little bit of why I, I was saying our use of language and our use of words are sloppy. If you were to, if you were to be assigned the task to study and find a new concept or a new phenomenon that's occurring and give it a word, that's an interesting process to go through. Words are an abstract representation of a concept or a phenomenon. So when someone begins to take notice, this is happening. People are beginning to think this way. This is an idea that's showing up in lots of research. Um, there are some interesting common things that are happening. You begin to study it. You be begin to identify what are the characteristics of this phenomenon. And you start to look and see, is this happening other places on the planet? Are other people thinking about this? Are other people writing about this? And as that all begins to merge, we then give that concept or that phenomenon a label. We give it a word. I'll give you an example. You've probably heard of a paradigm shift. I was curious of when that first came on the scene. So I did just a brief little bit of digging. 1962 uh, was coined by U.S. philosopher Thomas Kuhn in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Just like you heard in the previous message, we experience incremental changes and then we will at times experience a paradigm shift. He defined it this way, a dramatic shift in the framework of a scientific community. That, that, that really did help me much when it comes to defining paradigm shift. It's a very specific uh, definition for his book and it's very spe specific to the world of science. But just in a short time that that came on the scene, its meaning has changed. And paradigm shift, if you've heard it, you've probably, some of you may have heard it if you did any reading or research into Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Um, he used it and probably a lot of it went out into the business world because of Mr. Covey. But a paradigm shift now is a sudden change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and a different way. Well, how's that different than an epiphany? change, understanding, realization, conversion, or again, as we heard previously, an aha moment. Are these all pointing to the same concept or are there unique characteristics to each of those? And how would we explain the differences? You can see it gets a little muddy already. Our words in practical everyday use have commonly understand, understood meanings. But when we look back in history, we can see that word meanings and their common usage has changed over time. I'll use my surname as an example. My name in German means fat. So if you are a Looney Tunes fan and you go and watch a Porky Pig clip, he is referred to in German as Dickschwein, a fat pig. Previously, it meant fat in the sense of wealth. 
And if you understand uh, generations long before us, only those who were wealthy, those who were rich, were able to put on fat. Most people did not have access to the cuts of meat and the kinds of food that a wealthy person would have, and so they were much skinnier in general. So if you saw a large person, they were wealthy. So it meant wealthy at one point. It has come down to just simply mean fat. So common use can vary within smaller groups and communities as well. Often a word can mean something different to different people. And it's really important when we go to talk to other people, especially about religious matters, that you define your terms when you launch into a discussion. Because you can start talking about a term or a word, and the person you're talking to is talking about that term or that word, and you're both on different pages. You both have different meanings assigned to those words. So imagine talking to someone about the kingdom of God from, an, from another religion. Baptism means different things to different religions. If you start to talk about the holy days, what does that mean to someone who doesn't keep the same days as we do? Salvation, and we could go on and on and on. So sometimes it can be more subtle than those blatant examples. I'd like to quote from a book. Again, I mentioned to you I, I enjoy the study of words, so some of my Bible study library has uh, focused in on some books that are specific to the study of words. One very 1800s sounding name it's called Girdle Stones, Synonyms of the Old Testament, and it's one of my more valued biblical word study books. He has this to say about words. In making a translation of the Bible, it is impossible at first to find adequate words for some of the ideas that it contains. And there must always be a risk of considerable misunderstanding for a time. It is only gradually that the Bible usage of a word becomes engrafted into a national language. And it has been noticed that the more fixed a language is at the time of the translation, the greater is the difficulty of, excuse me, of diverting words from their general use to the sacred purpose of the Bible. He goes on to say, how is it possible that a translation should bring out all of the shades of thought that are found in the Hebrew Bible. Thus the play on words, which is so frequent in the original, can rarely be reproduced in another language. If you've listened to Dr. Levy give FI instruction, you will hear him talk about the play on words that's commonly there that we simply don't pick up on when we read it in the English. Girdlestone continues. Such distinctions as exist between the rest, that means cessation, and that which signifies quietness, or between the fear, that the fear that signifies terror and that which marks respect, are often un left unnoticed by translators. So this is what I mean when I say words, language, can be sloppy. I mentioned adding certain volumes to my library, but many a biblical researcher has spent hundreds of hours in the study of language, in the study of words, in the study of meaning, of translations from one language to another. And so we have many familiar resources that we've heard of before, Strong's Concordance, Young's Concordance, Hebrew and Greek lexicons, Bible dictionaries, Bible word studies, Bible encyclopedias, and so on. 
So now let's get to the point. Let's discuss a word that represents a complex concept, one that is extremely important to God and man, one that is vital for conversion, and it's of particular attention for each of us as we approach and observe these spring holy days. But as I mentioned in the very first sentence of the message, the word is insufficient to the task. We refer to the concept with the word repentance. When we consider repentance, I would say it's pretty crucial that we get this right. This is something God wants us to use and to understand. God's gift to man hangs in the balance over this concept. How do we individually know that we have it right? Are we understanding and practicing repentance as God intends? And what is the concept that he has in mind when we hear that word repentance? Our Bibles, as you know, are English translations from Hebrew and Greek. And there's been some tapping into Latin at some point. Um, there's been some Aramaic. So there are many languages that converge to make up our English Bible. But our Bibles use the word repent and repentance to represent the concept, or at least to communicate the concept that we're going to, to dive into today. If I ask you to define repentance right now, what would you write? Or better yet, if you were assigned an essay on repentance, would we adequately, adequately explain the concept in a few pages? So let's take a look at repentance, just the word itself. Again, this is the etymology of the word. It's from the etymologyonline.com. The word repentance, re, just that prefix re, perhaps used as an intensive prefix, which means very much. And then from a Latin word, that means to regret or to make sorry. They go on to say with this, this portion in that online dictionary that the distinction between regret and repent is made in many modern languages, but is absent in older periods. So we literally have a word that means very much sorry. Would any of you sitting here today say, okay, that's what it means, that's what it means, let's move on, that's sufficient. I hope not, I hope not. Sorry doesn't capture the concept. Let's go back to Girdlestones for a minute. <clears throat> he writes about this particular word. Very diverse views have been held with respect to the meaning of the word repentance. Some take it to indicate a change of heart or thought, others a change of aim or purpose, and others a change of life or conduct which is the way that God wants it communicated. Because you noticed in that quote, some did this, others did this, others did this. Are these all part of the same concept? But he's depicting it that different people take it different ways. Continuing, the English word repent is used in the authorized version, the King James Version of the Old Testament to represent a form of the Hebrew nakam, 
from which the name of the prophet Nahum is derived. The original meaning of this word is generally understood to be to draw a deep breath. This is taken as a physical mode of, of, of giving expression to a deep feeling, either of relief or of sorrow. So we see, again, repentance here is leak, uh, linked to sorrow or feeling sorry. Gets a little more complicated, though. The word repent is also used in many passages to refer to God's repentance. Some have tried to use this apparent anomaly to accuse the Bible of doublespeak, meaning it's unreliable as a source of truth. Back to Girdlestones for a minute. He quotes two passages where nakam, this word, is used. First in 1 Samuel 15, 29, where it says, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And then Jonah 3.10, God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. So not only do we have repent here used in reference to God, it's just a sample of a number of passages that were referenced in that resource, it also states that he does not repent and that he does repent. So again, it's looking... Again, people will use this to say it looks like it's a contradiction. It's not when you begin to study those passages. It's just a signal that more information is needed, more research is needed. But it helps to illustrate the trouble with this word that's representing a concept. I'll go back to Girdlestones again. It is evident from a consideration of these passages that when we approach the subject of repentance in the New Testament, we must not tie it down too strictly, either to one formal process or to one set time in a man's life. But we must understand by it such a state of deep feeling as leads to change or amendment of life. And then he continues. It's hard indeed to find one expression in any language that can adequately represent the complex emotions implied by the word repent. When the word is used with reference to God, there is implied an idea of change and perhaps of sorrow, but not the consciousness of wrongdoing. When it is used in reference to man, sorrow arises from a sense of sin, a conviction of wrongdoing in, in its varied aspects, fills the heart with bitterness and change of purpose and of outward life ensue. Also, an undercurrent of relief accompanies the sorrow. So we can see just in a few short paragraphs from two sources, this online etymology dictionary and this Girdlestone synonyms of the Old Testament, just a few of the variables and characteristics that have been attached to the word repentance. A change of heart or thought, a change of purpose, a change of life or conduct, a deep feeling of sorrow, a deep feeling that leads to a change of life, a heart filled with bitterness towards sin, and a feeling of relief that accompanies sorrow. Let's spend some time now focusing on four aspects or characteristics of the concept of repentance. And I want you to keep in mind as we go through these that each of these aspects is an important piece to the concept an important characteristic, and each also has a history of misapplication 
or misunderstanding. First, let's address sorrow. Came up quite a bit as we were reading through the initial passages. As we read, sorrow is directly connected with the word nakam and to the etymology of the word repentance, to be very penitent or very much sorry. We also understand that sorrow does not capture the entire concept of what God wants from man, but it is a part. Sorrow itself, just that word and that concept, is not a one-size-fits-all one word either. There are many types of sorrow. Again, we have a word that insufficiently represents many thoughts and emotions that we've come to know as sorrow. Just look at a couple of them to illustrate the point. Sorrow itself, typically defined as an emotion, a sentimental feeling. It can be brief. If I'm walking out today and I bump into one of you and I turn and say I'm sorry, it's genuine, it's brief, it's short-lived incident and we both go on and there's no, there's no, there's nothing more, it's, it's past. Um, sorrow can be much greater than that too. But in each of these cases, whether it's genuine or not, and there can be insincere sorrow, it does not necessarily indicate a change of life. Second, regret. Regret's a feeling of sorrow, but it has the additional element of looking back and considering past events. I wish things could have been different. A looking back with a feeling of distress. This too can be very genuine, but it does not indicate a change of life. And then thirdly, another form of sorrow is remorse. And this is a sorrow that looks back, but with the additional element of guilt. Remorse tends to linger. And the online etymology dictionary, when it comes to remorse, defines it as an intense and painful self-condemnation due to consciousness of guilt, the pain of a guilty conscience. The intensity has increased, but this word too does not necessarily indicate a change of life. So bottom line, these levels of sorrow don't measure up to the concept of what God wants us to understand. Let me quote from a different word study book called Word Meetings in the Old Testament by Ralph Earle. He says this, too often sorrow is confused with repentance, but though the two may be closely related in experience, they are far apart in essential meaning. Vincent has written well, sorrow is not, as popularly conceived, the primary nor the prominent notion of the word. Earl continues and comments on one of the two prominent Greek words that are translated repent or repentance in the New Testament. The word metamelomai has to do more with emotions and so does not indicate true biblical repentance. So we have a word in our scriptures that shows up as repent or repentance, but as being brought out here, this word does not indicate true biblical repentance, but the emotions of sorrow. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. We're gonna read just a few verses. This is a remarkable passage that discusses each of these aspects of sorrow, regret, and remorse and repentance 
and it even goes further. <clears throat> Just to give you a little setting leading up to this, we know from Paul's interaction with the Corinthians that a grievous sin was committed within the Corinthian church, one that was not even practiced by the Gentiles of Corinth. That's saying something because Corinth was the Sodom and Gomorrah of its day. The congregation tolerated it. And then Paul corrects them strongly and instructs them about what to do. As we get to 2 Corinthians, and specifically here in 2 Corinthians 7, we see a beautiful example of repentance that resulted in this community and with the couple that was involved, and it's documented for us and the benefit for generations. The heading in my New, uh, New King James Bible says, The Corinthians' Repentance. Let's start in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So you're seeing him dance around these words that we've already talked about. King James Version says it like this. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now that word regret, that word repent in the King James is the same Greek word that we referenced above, that metamelomai, which just simply means a feeling, an emotion of being sorry. Verse 9 now. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. This is the other of the two Greek words. This is metanoia, and we'll get to its meaning here in just a minute. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. So he's making a distinction here that there's different kinds of sorry, and he, you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance. So we have an element of sorrow that's above just a feeling. It's above regret. It's above remorse. It's of substance that leads to repentance. So again, it's part of the concept, but you're seeing sorrow and repentance used together here, but one is higher than the other one. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. You don't have to look back and regret. But the sorrow of the world, a different kind of sorry, produces death. So you've got one where the end result is salvation, another one where the end result is death. And then he goes on in verse 11 to list some characteristics for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. Clearing of yourselves, indignation, fear, vehement, vehement desire, zeal, and vindication. Barnes puts it this, this way for vindication. It actually means punishment. Or, as Barnes put, puts it, the maintenance of right protection the protection of what is right and true and good. 
And then he finishes that passage. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. So just in a few verses, we see regret, we see sorrow, we see repentance, we see godly sorrow, we see sorrow of the world. And there's a distinction made between these types of sorrow. Godly sorrow is the one we want to focus in on. This is the one that leads to repentance, and it's, a, it's an important part of the process. Now, I'd like to quote from one of our old, original Bible correspondence courses from 1954. This is from Lesson 24. And this, these, these particular lessons that I'll quote from, from the Bible correspondence course, are all regarding repentance. It says, it is not a matter of feeling. It's not a matter of stirring up one's emotions. It's a matter of heart. Deep down in your heart, do you realize that you, that you have thought, spoken, and lived contrary to God's law and biblical teaching? Brethren, we all know that godly sorrow leading to repentance is transformational. There is a change of life. As one of the sources said, there's amendment to life. And there is evidence of it. We just saw back in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, and as I read through each of those, those were each pieces that were evidence to Paul that they got it, that they got the concept, and they were living it. Back to Mr. Earl and word meanings of the New Testament. He says, what is repentance? The Greek noun metanoia literally means change of mind. It is more than emotional sorrow, which too often does not produce any change of life. Rather, it's a change of mind or attitude toward God, toward sin, and towards ourselves. Deep repentance involves a real turnabout in life. You know, if we go back and read verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, we read it differently now with an understanding of these differences of sorrow, regret, remorse, godly sorrow, repentance. I'll throw one more word into the mix as we end this particular first point. This comes from New Testament words by William Barclay. This is a, about a Greek word spelled P-E-N-T-H-E-I-N, penthein or penthein. The verb means to sorrow. It is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is a word which in all ages of Greek is used for mourning for the dead. This then is the word which the New Testament uses for a Christian's mourning for sin. The Christian sorrow for sin must not only, must be not only a gentle, vague, sentimental regret that something has gone wrong, it must be a sorrow as acute, a sorrow for the dead. We have not even begun on the Christian way until we take sin with such seriousness that our sorrow for it is like the mourning for one who mourns for the dead, godly sorrow of a broken heart. Let's move on to the second point. This may sound unusual to you, as I state it, in our church setting. 
Here's the point. Penance is not repentance. Penance is not repentance. Why do I even mention penance? As I was preparing the message, it was interesting to me how often repentance and penance were mingled together. Uh, they do get mixed together, both in religion and re religious resources, and it also something that's lurking in our human nature. Let me read again from this etymology dictionary about the word penance. Penance, a religious discipline or self-mortification as a token of repentance and as an atonement for some sin, sorrow for sin shown by outward acts under the authority and regulation of the church. This would be the Catholic Church. It goes on to say that the word penance comes from an Anglo-French, Old French, and Latin word repentance or penitent, to cause or feel regret. Transferred sense of repentance, contrition, is recorded from the 1300s. So just right there we see that those two were weaving in and out from each other and getting blended together. Uh, I'll go back and reference a quote from Girdlestones again uh, regarding the Latin word as he was wrestling with a Latin translation and he was looking at a word for re repentance. Uh, in Erasmus's day, the Roman sacrament of penance, which is the satis satisfaction for sins committed after baptism, was called by the same name as penitence, or sorrow for sins committed with, with, before, or after baptism. He thought that some other word should be adopted. Yes, definitely, those two should be separated from one another. So it may be easy to dismiss, okay, penance is a Catholic doctrine matter has no place with what we're doing here. But consider this quote from the Schaff-Herzog Encyclopedia on the article, Penance. It is found in all religions. If you give it some thought, this shouldn't really be a surprise that we human beings often think in terms of penance. It is a common phenomenon. You know, the moment that you are struck by guilt, you realize you've done something really wrong. Imagine you've really hurt a close friend and you deeply feel regret for doing it. What are you motivated to do? To try to fix it. I gotta do something about this. In the world of religion, we sometimes feel, I need to be a better person. I need to be more perfect. If I can just be here, then I can take this step. It's a common hurdle for those who are looking to baptism. I need to measure up before I start this. It's not the case. It can be guilt driven by duty. It can be avoidance of God or avoidance of other people until I'm better, until I'm more perfect. I could describe it lots of different ways, but you, you can see the point. We are driven in human nature to make it right. How do I fix it? Let's turn to Matthew 18. I would like to take an unusual look at a parable in the sense that I'm only gonna read half of it. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. And we're just gonna look at the first half 
of the parable only. <clears throat> Matthew 18, and we'll start in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, he was brought, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you've heard this parable discussed before, there's probably 20, 30 different values that you've probably heard attached to 10,000 talents. Just to name a couple that I found, 3.48 billion, 600 million, 161 million. Uh, this one was hard to wrap my head around. 200,000 years of labor to meet this debt. The idea, as you already know, is to convey an astronomical amount of debt. Continuing in verse 25, but as he was not able to pay it, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and that all he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master have patience with me and I will pay you all. This is penance. I need to take care of this. We already know from the amount above that it's impossible. This was a massive, massive debt. So this is a plea of desperation. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now we know, and there are many resources that simply point to the fact that debt is a metaphor for sin. Barnes says this, the sum is used to show that the debt was immensely large and that our sins are so great that they cannot be estimated or numbered. I have another book at home that I recently dug into for this message and it's called The Parables of Our Savior by William Taylor. He had three interesting, point, interesting points about this particular parable. First one, we're all God's debtors. We know from Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned. We've all come short. He makes the additional point uh, under that first point that a debt is a moral offense. And a moral offense cannot be satisfied with payment of silver and gold. His second point links right to that. None of us have anything wherewith to pay our debt to God. And I'll save the third point for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you read that portion of that parable, have you ever put yourself in the place of that servant? For me, I've clung to that first half as a reminder of the magnitude of the gift that I've been given. The magnitude of the path and the trail that I've left behind me and the damage that I've done. It's a reminder that it's a gift that cannot be earned. It cannot be paid for by me. It is an impossibility. And it's a reminder that keeps us away from one of the dangers of penance. It's, again, it's deeply embedded in the human psyche to want to handle matters ourselves, to make payment on our own. What can I do to make it right? And this can be accompanied by an intense guilt and a drive to get rid of that feeling. It can drive a perfectionist mad. I've got to do something. I have got to do something. 
passage we all know quite well. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Barnes says this, for the wages of sin, the word translated here wages properly denotes what is purchased to be eaten with bread as fish, meat, and vegetables. And thence it means the pay of a Roman soldier because formerly it was the custom to pay the soldier in these things. It means hence that a man earns or deserves what is his proper pay or what he merits. As applied to sin, it means that death is what sin deserves, what will be its proper reward. And he says this about the gift of God, not the wages of man, not what is due to him, but the mere gift and mercy of God. The apostle is careful to distinguish and to specify that this is not what man deserves, but what he is gratuitously conferred on him. Penance has no place with repentance. I mentioned a third point that I was holding back from that book on the parables of our Savior. His third point from that book was God is willing to forgive our debt. And that leads to the third item that I want us to consider and that is repentance requires faith. Repentance requires faith. We know already repentance is a deep sorrow that leads to a change and an amendment of life. Payment for sin has been made and a payment that makes eternal life possible, one that we cannot make ourselves. When we repent, we are forgiven. This is fact. This is the truth. Do we believe it? And do we believe it all of the time? Back to the correspondence course. Quote, God promises us that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, that he would deliver us from this present evil world. This is one of, the, this is one of God's promises we must have faith in to the greatest extent we are humanly capable. All through the New Testament, the name Christ appears as our Savior, as our High Priest, as our Redeemer, as our King and Ruler, and Christ is mentioned as being in us. No wonder a part of our believing, our faith, must consist of believing these things. You know, our faith also includes an understanding of Christ's sacrifice and our need for repentance for sin. And our regard for God's instructions must be deeply felt and part of our faith. A healthy fear of God and the consequences for disobedience are also part of our faith. If we freely sin, we cast aside sacrifice, we cast aside repentance, we cast aside the appropriate fear and regard for God's instructions. Passage that you all know well, Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. It was read last week. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me and where is the place of my rest? Again, things that we can't do. Number for verse 2, he says, for all those things my hand is made and all those things exist. 
But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. More pieces to this concept. We're not referring to someone who's poor monetarily. We're referring to someone who is deeply humble and has an understanding of their place. Contrite spirit. Barnes note says a spirit that is broken, crushed, or deeply affected by sin. The Oxford Dictionary says feeling or expressing remorse or penitence affected by guilt. All things that we've covered. And then he says in that last part of that scripture, he trembles at my word. This is a serious regard for God and a fear, a healthy fear and understanding of his instructions and the importance of our relationship with him. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It gives energy. It gives relief. It gives cleansing. It gives renewal. And it strengthens our faith. If you ever have doubts and need one place to turn on this point, Psalms 103, verses 10 through 12. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Lastly, repentance is a lifelong process. Repentance is incremental. It's something that takes place across a lifetime. It's not all at once, just at baptism. It's not once and done. It is our response to God. God does expect our engagement with him. He expects our skin in the game. You know, he loved us first. We didn't initiate this relationship. He initiated the relationship. This is our response, part of our response. I'll close by just reading a couple more passages from the 1954 Bible Correspondence Course. God knew that man could not have this perfection of character which it, is his, which it is his purpose to create within us by instantaneous fiat creation alone. Favorite comment of Mr. Armstrong years ago. It requires time, knowledge, submissiveness, decision, cooperative will, self-resistance, self-direction on man's part, teaming up with God. This perfection of character can come only through experience with man's consent and willingness. Thus, the very first step on the way towards real and everlasting happiness is genuine, deep, and complete repentance. Character is something which cannot be instantaneously created. It grows and it developed through experience of overcoming. These require time. It requires the lifetime during which you must suffer temptations, encounter obstacles, endure tribulations, overcome self, but God promises you his power to draw on to help you. Your part is to repent, surrender fully, 
wholly, unreservedly into his hand. Seek him, cry out to him, trust him. And God even grants you the understanding and spiritual capacity to enable you to repent. But you have to do your part in it, of course, else there would be no character. Repentance is more, for in actually living, you will continually become, sorry, for in actually living, you will continually be coming to God after that time in repentance for sins you commit along the way, asking God for an apportionment of Christ's blood to cancel them out. <clears throat> New knowledge together with these repentances will produce a change in your whole viewpoint of life. So we've talked about a concept. We've attached a word that's insufficient to cover the concept. I can't tell you in a single message with completeness all of the parts of that concept. But what I can tell you and that we did cover is that it involves a profound sorrow for sin, a sorrow that moves us to action. It is not penance, penance, excuse me. It is not penance. Simply follow the directions given in scripture. <laughs> Once you truly repent, you must live knowing that you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can believe that completely. And it is a lifelong part of a healthy spiritual relationship with God. We also saw that it involves a contrite spirit. It involves trembling at his word. Being poor in spirit. There's so much more. But we've at least scratched the surface and covered a piece of what's truly important. The concept that we know as repentance. Repentance.